Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jay Anelli, and I like Vivian Reed. I'm Andrew Weissel, and I like like Vivian Reed. I'm Ashley Barrow, and I love Vivian Reed. She is a great character, I have to say. We'll, we'll talk about her story in just a second, but I'm not sure very many planeswalkers that were introduced in this era have had quite this strong a first showing. Well, they certainly haven't gotten their own stories, which was nice to see. Much less three of their own stories. I like that we're getting this little section about Vivian because she's new and we need to know who she is so that if she appears in the Ravnica story, you don't have to spend Ravnica story time explaining who Vivian is. People will know already. Also, we should know before we go any farther, Brian is not here this week because he is having a blast at DragonCon. Jerk. So, Vorthos news. I should start by saying we record before PAX, so by the time you're listening to this, you've probably seen some pretty cool preview cards that were revealed at PAX and probably had grainy cell phone footage taken of because they're not streaming it. They're live-tweeting it, so we'll have good resolution images of preview cards, hopefully, and hopefully art, because I believe there's some world-building people on the panel, which, if I'm wrong, you can all yell at me (laughs) on today, Monday, when you're listening. So anything we learned this weekend at PAX is not going to appear in this cast because recording schedules. So, sorry (laughs) is, I guess, the best we can say. We'll talk all about it next week. We're going to get some more preview cards. Tuesday is the promos. And then Mike Lineman has a series of cryptic previews that involve art or something or other. I don't know. Seems neat. We'll see what that is later this week. In lieu of any preview cards to discuss, we're going to talk about Weekly MTG this past Thursday which showed off some pretty cool stuff, even though we didn't get any preview cards. They talked about the guild mechanics, which we'll talk about more when we're ready to do our deep dives into the guilds themselves. But they also showed off the guild kits, which are basically a Vorthos deck dream, I would say. They include cards from all three Ravnica sets, so they're not like standard legal for the most part. But they have some pretty cool stuff in them, especially if you're a fan of getting cards in the latest frame, which I definitely am. And they have, at least as far as we know, at least two new pieces of artwork for some of the guild leaders. Now, the guild leader varies. They didn't pick just one card from whatever set. So we're going to get to see a new art of Aurelia by Paul Scott Canavan. And we're going to see a new art Niv-Mizzet by Darkin. These look awesome, I would have to say. Aurelia is like lit from the light from behind. Her wings are like golden. She's got the power in her eyes. It's just a very cool looking piece. That is brilliant art criticism work, Jay, lit by the light. (laughs) But yeah, if you follow us on Twitter, which you should, at the Vorthos cast, we retweeted the Aurelia art already. It's so good. The Niv-Mizzet card, though, we haven't really seen on any of Niv-Mizzet's legendary cards his, like, whole body. You know, the first one, it was just kind of, like, three-quarters of him. The last printing of Niv-Mizzet from Return to Ravnica, actually, he looked weird, like he didn't have a neck. And 
the Niv-Mizzet Draco genius, he was just kind of sitting down. This one has a very action pose where he's like perched on the top of a building in Ravnica. And you can see some of the skyline there. It just looks very cool. And it really wants me to revisit Niv-Mizzet and get some copies of this. Because like, despite already having like six copies of Niv-Mizzet, I want this one too. Another thing we learned this past week is once the Vivian Reed story premiered, the story widget actually has the dates that the rest of the story is going to be premiering on now. Thank you, wizards. Very cool, and props, because, you know, we talked about this, what, two weeks ago? Three weeks ago now? Not that long ago, and the first set following already incorporates it. So that one was probably one of the low-hanging fruit of what we talked about. Anything else that we talked about, even if they want to implement it, just for our readers, even if they want to implement it, it's going to take a fairly significant chunk of time to actually implement it any of the other suggestions we talked about. But it's nice to see the one that was very easily doable getting addressed so quickly. The widget also included some new artwork of Vivian we hadn't seen before. It looks like art from Harvey Tolabau, who is the artist for the Chandra Nalar comic. It looks like one of the character studies he did. He did one for Ajani and for Chandra. And this one looks like his style. It's in that same comic book style. We don't have confirmation yet if it's his, but if it is, I wonder if that means Vivian is going to be showing up in Chandra's comic. They were coy about that in interviews. They did mention that there would be other planeswalkers, but they didn't say who. If Vivian is going to be part of that comic, once again, another great reason that she has her own introductory story now to get players familiar with her as a character. I will also say there was a sneak preview of this week's story on the Mary Sue, where they did an interview with Cassandra Kaw. Cassandra's interview was just so great. She is obviously such a very enthusiastic Vorthos who loves Phyrexia, talks about the kinds of things we talked about here, where the old walkers were, as she said, omnipotent gods, slowly growing bored of their own immortality, hungry for sensation, for new experience, endlessly swallowing up worlds, forcing creatures into combat, and then discarding them across the multiverse. There's just so much intrinsic horror there, and that is just such a great quote. She's definitely someone who perfectly understands the nature of these omnipotent planeswalkers from back in the day. And I love that we have someone like that writing a story that's specifically about someone who faced that horror from Nicobolus, who destroyed her world. And I love it because as soon as I started reading that quote, I was like, wow, this sounds like the old anthologies. And then shortly after, she mentioned that Tapestries, one of those early anthologies, is one of her favorite magic books. I'm currently on my way through Distant Plains, which is the anthology after that. And that's the point of those anthologies is planeswalkers are awful and screw up all kinds of things for all these little people across the multiverse. It was kind of funny to see those lead into each other. I also really appreciated that when asked which planeswalker she would put on a planeswalker Legion of Doom, the first name mentioned was Urza. Thank you, Cassandra for siding with us on the fact that Urza is a friggin' jerk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'll talk about her story in a second, because I think we all really enjoyed it here. 
Let's move on to listener questions. This week, we're answering three questions from listeners that have been sitting on our pile for a little while now. So the first one is from the little E on Twitter. And the question is, does it bother you, even just a little, that in the current age of story-led design, there are moments where flavor text and story doesn't match? That's a good question. And that's kind of is a good segue to talk about why it doesn't match. I will say it does bother me a little bit, but I also understand why it happens. Because when we're talking about lore for magic, you have to remember that not everyone is consuming it like we do. That is, reading all the stories, following things on Twitter. If you're listening to us, you're a pretty enfranchised Vorthos at this point. You're someone who probably knows what the term Vorthos is. For the majority of players, they're consuming it through the cards itself. Sometimes it doesn't match up and it doesn't make sense, and it does, I think, bother all of us. But other times it's because the nuance of the larger story can't always be captured all that well in the card format. They have, you know, maybe two or three sentences if they really have a lot of room for flavor text, and they have artwork. And those two things together can't always convey all of the nuance inherent in some of the story plot points. But we also have to allow room for artistic liberty. Like, every piece of artwork doesn't have to be 100% literal. The legendary sorceries from Dominaria are a really great example of this, where many of them are not literal interpretations of the event, like Urza's Ruinous Blast. There would be no way to communicate that as effectively as you could with the more symbolic art that goes along with it. So I think that's okay. It does annoy me a little bit where the flavor text will say one thing and then a story will contradict it, or at least not seem to recognize the flavor text said that. And part of that is there are two very different processes. Something Andrew knows fairly well, but which he can't talk about. But the development of the flavor text is a separate process from the development of the story itself. By the way, Jay, you were really generous saying that sometimes we only have two or three sentences. Sometimes we have one line, so maybe like <laughs> seven words to condense something for a card. The most important way to look at it is that flavor text serves a different function than Magic Story as it's published on the website. They have different audiences and have to do different amounts of work, and occasionally something will show up in a flavor text that's not quite the same as what happened in a story, but consider all the flavor texts that have to get written for every single set, and then all the words that have to get written for Magic Story, and you realize that that almost never has happened in the history of Magic, which is really impressive. I will say the thing that bothers me way more than flavor text and story disconnect is when the creative text for the products themselves, like the, the player's guide or something, doesn't match up, because that has frequently been a problem in the past. Like, it'll say something wildly incorrect. A lot of it is different teams working on different things with different goals in different time frames, which you can be cynical about, but that is the reality of producing a mass market trading card game. Absolutely. Sometimes you have to 
retcon that Darth Vader killed Anakin Skywalker because it makes your second movie better. (laughs) Sometimes stuff is just going to be different and you have to live with that. Not to sound dismissive, but that's the reality of game production is sometimes that stuff happens. But everyone is working very hard to make it not happen, and it rarely happens. So yay for that. And I will admit, a lot of the time, it's something that only people like us will notice. You know, we mentioned before that each of these products serve a different audience, and so the player's guide isn't really for the hardcore Vorthos like us anyway. Our next question is from nlambert91090 on Twitter, and their question was, do the angels in the multiverse have the ability to return as a ghost if they're not artificial? And on a related note, do they have souls, period? So there are a number of angel spirits in magic already, so yes, angel ghosts, go for it. And do angels have souls? This is related to the angel rant I mentioned last week. So let's talk about what angels are in magic. At their metaphysical core, they are mana constructs. They are organisms made of flesh and bone and blood like any other organism, but they are created through a confluence of usually white mana. There are sometimes non-white angels, but not very many. That means they're not born. That doesn't mean they don't have souls. They are still sapient organisms that often have free will, although it can get a little fuzzy because some angels are born into systems like the Church of Sarah where they kind of have a purpose imbued into them upon birth. That can get a little shaky in terms of what they kind of do with their lives, but as functional people, they have free will and have souls. That's not really in question. The subtext of the do angels have souls question is, can angels be planeswalkers, I think, because being sapient and having a soul is a requirement for being able to hold a spark. This is why corpses cannot hold them, so sorry zombies, unless you're some kind of convoluted lich, you're probably not going to be a planeswalker. So the other requirement for having a spark is that you have to be born organically. So angels aren't born. They are mana constructs. That doesn't necessarily mean they are artificially created, although some are, such as Addison. But angels just kind of come into being on a lot of planes naturally. That's implied in the angels on Innistrad that aren't Addison. We saw it happen to Tiana. So while they have souls and are people, they're not born So metaphysically, we're not getting an angel planeswalker who was born with a spark. That doesn't mean there can't be an angel planeswalker. In order for an angel planeswalker to happen, there would need to be someone who was born get turned into an angel, or an artificial transfer method to move a spark from a planeswalker into an angel. We've seen both of these things happen with creatures that are not usually planeswalkers anyway. Karn had sparks transferred to him through Urza's Power Stone eyes, and then later through Venser's teleportation. And then with Obnixilis, because demons are similar to angels in that they're constructs of black mana, Ob was born a human and ascended as a planeswalker as a human, and didn't become a demon until he was cursed by the chain veil later in his life. So, yes, angels have souls. No, they're not going to be born with sparks. Yes, 
if the story calls for it and if creative wants to do it, they can find a way to easily make an angel planeswalker. I should note here that whether or not an angel is artificial is kind of iffy as to whether or not they would get a soul. And the reason I say that is because of the different ways they're created. Andrew mentioned the Sarah angels, like how Tiana was created. On Bant, one of the things kind of buried away in the Planeswalker's Guide is that it is said, I don't think it's ever confirmed, that angels are manifested as an enchantment from the highest castes of Bant's society. So if you're like an extraordinarily good person, when you die, you're reincarnated as an angel. If that's true, I could absolutely see an argument for a Planeswalker who dies on Bant being reincarnated as an angel. That angel still has that spark. Maybe. I don't know. That gets into the metaphysical question of when the spark ceases to exist upon death, which I'm sure nobody is interested in having to set rules for. (laughs) Yeah. At some point, my nitpicking pedantry for all of this is pointless, and it's really just for for my own uh, enjoyment. Let's move on to Magic Story Unbowed, Part 1. This is the first of three parts about specifically Vivian Reed, who is the new Planeswalker introduced in Core 2019. It starts off with Vivian on a ship bound for the island nation of Luno. I believe that's how you should say it, because it's supposed to be like a French-ish word. That was the impression I got from it. So the island nation of Luno, I should mention, is on Ixalan. So this is a Ixalan set story, just as a heads up. She's being transported by a vampire from the Dusk Legion, and they are transporting a dinosaur of, I think it was a brontosaur, is what they called it? Brontodon. Brontodon, that's right. It was the... Thundertooth. <laughs> the the fake dinosaur names that they use uh, s- trip me up a little bit because they sound like they should be real ones. The vampire transporting her is a very odious man named Frederick, and Frederick is kind of misleading Vivian deliberately on the menagerie that these dinosaurs are being transported to. When they arrive in Luneau, Vivian gets pickpocketed and stops this boy and, uh, from pickpocketing her. And the boy begs for mercy and offers her his blood, and she gets, like, weirded out and upset by that, as anyone would be. But it turns out on this particular island, blood is the currency, because it's run by vampires. This is a moment in magic storytelling that I think we should actually probably see more. This kind of, we need to explain the rules of our society so our planeswalkers get culture shock, because that's what this is. So it was just nice to see this small moment that helps build Vivian's character, helps sell the depressingly awful, awful world of Luneau, and solidify Frederick as a grade A D-bag. And it was a short moment that in like one or two sentences told you so much about the setting and about the characters and how they react to that. I think it also did a better job than Ixalan in just a few lines from Frederick in describing like the colonial problem. I don't even know how to phrase it, but the the disgusting attitude of colonizers in 
that regard, because Frederick has this line where he sighs and says, As for the matter of the boy, I suppose I might have misstepped, but the Legion of Dusk does see itself as the caretaker of Ixalan. Here in Leno, we have the facilities to take care of people like him, but the rest of the world isn't so lucky, and what manner of gentry would we be if we did not do our part to protect these lands? That line just gave me the creeps, because it is such a common phenomena, and you'll even see it today, where looking back in history, oh, well, they're better off because we civilized them, is a common excuse for colonialism. And it is, I mean, honestly, it's pretty disgusting. And having it spat at out by a vampire in this context really gives you a great idea of the insidious nature of the Dusk Legion. It isn't just that they're vampires, but they're vampires who believe they are caring for the people they've essentially taken as cattle. I think that it's so fitting that they're vampires um, and the role that they play in the world, not just they're sucking blood from people, but that they're sucking the resources from these other continents and for their own gain. I think that's really fitting, and I, I just love Ixalan. It's great. Yeah, it's a very deliberate allegory, which I believe it was Jenna Helen who pitched this as Vampire Conquistadors, as like the two-word what this world could be about. And this gets at the other half of colonialism that the set of Ixalan didn't get to show. So in the sets, we got to see the Legion of Dusk on Ixalan, where they did not have a stranglehold yet. They had a couple colony cities, and we got to see a lot of the martial attitudes of a colonizing force, the conquering, and the mentality that they are going to own this land, even though the Sun Empire and the River Heralds had been there for thousands of years already. What we didn't get to see was what the Legion's cities look like back on their own continents. Because we have to remember, even though they started in a small country called Torazon, they conquered that whole continent and renamed it Torazon, and then they went and conquered other continents across the plain. There isn't just Ixalan or Torazon. We now have Luno, which is another continent on the plain that the Legion has taken over and has a lot more French influence than the Spanish-influenced Torazon. We know there's some kind of frozen thing up north that was hinted on in Glacial Fortress. So this is a very big world, and we're getting to see so much more of it. And that's very exciting. And we're getting to see not just how awful the Legion of Dusk is when they are in somebody else's territory slaughtering people indiscriminately, but we get to see how awful they are back home. And the utter extravagance of this city, the way... Cassandra writes this whole section, it's like marble and gold and everything's big and fancy. One of the neat descriptions was that there's like, there's like no little cafes or anything like cozy and neat and pedestrian. It's like the entire city is built upon the colonial excess of the Legion of Dusk, which was awesome and awful to read at the same time, because it's really good world building, and boy, the Legion is just terrible, terrible people. There's also some great parallels here 
with the royal menagerie and the attitudes of the vampires who run it, where Frederick basically responds that the royal menagerie, which starves these animals, vivisects them, and puts them on display, is talking about preserving these animals, because who knows when they'll go extinct out in the savage wilds. And it is just like, so creeptastic, but so real to life that it creates this very horrific island, really has this kind of ominous foreboding that goes along with it. It's good to remember that Cassandra is known as a horror writer, and I think a lot of that comes through. Yeah, I was, I was horrified. <laughs> For real. Vivian is taken by Frederick as his guest to the royal menagerie, where they see the, the king and queen. I should note here that the king and queen are probably sub-kings and queens, like they owe their fealty to Torzon proper, but they themselves remain as the king and queen there. This is something that happens a lot when you expand your territory. One of the best ways to keep people in line is to let them essentially keep ruling themselves. They just are responsible to you later. And the king and queen here were turned into vampires, which is a pretty good incentive for joining up with the, the Dusk Legion. We also meet the Baron of Verneau, whose real name I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce because I'm just going to butcher it. He's the guy who runs the royal menagerie. There's a hint there that he is aware of the elder dinosaurs and is looking to acquire one. And as the show begins, Vivian gets more and more angry because they essentially are just torturing these animals for the entertainment of the vampires. And it isn't until they bring out this sad monster sore that's been starved and is clearly sick and ailing and just begin to torture it for show that she finally has enough and starts firing off the arc bow. The arc bow, we should mention, is treated as another character in this story, where from Vivian's perspective, the arc bow is not speaking to her in a literal sense, like the chain veil, the spirits of the chain veil might speak to Liliana, but there's clearly, at least Vivian believes, there's a bit of a will in there to actually preserve. So she starts firing off arrows, creates a, a hydra, which the vampires have no idea how to deal with. She creates a worm, a palaka worm specifically, and there's a really great line about how people never expect to be bite-sized. <laughs> that just made me laugh. It sticks out to me now. And the battle is going well at first, but as she charges up onto the stage, which I guess to release the monstrosaur, she is eventually overwhelmed because she's in you know the heart of this facility. So she's quickly overwhelmed and knocked unconscious and dragged away by the Baron who has expressed interest in how the Arkbow works. And that's where we leave the story. One of the things I want to bring up here is when this takes place, because of the timing of the Immortal Sun, this takes place after Rivals of Ixalan. There's no way it could happen before unless Vivian had trapped herself on Ixalan for some reason, which would just be kind of another weird coincidence since we've already had like two planeswalkers we know trapped there, plus uh, a new one we met. We also know it takes place after, because as you mentioned earlier, they reference the elder dinosaurs, who are now just on Ixalan, just out in the wild, being horrific. There's Kaiju now. Welcome. Hi. Ah, Zakama. Zakama. 
the beautiful love child of Godzilla and King Ghidorah. I love her. One thing I want to mention here is this is written very much like a horror story as well, for for obvious reasons. We already talked about how Cassandra's a, a horror author, and so it has kind of dense prose that goes along with it. But I, it actually really worked for me because of it highlighted the the dread, I would say, of a lot of these scenes in a way that if it was told a little more flatly, a little more simplistically, wouldn't have come across quite as much. So what I think about it is the first half of the story, it was really dense. And to me, it was hard to understand. It made me really uncomfortable because I have ADHD. So I prefer really straightforward stories where I can focus on what's happening instead of all the description. And even after reading it twice, I still had a hard time understanding it. So while I didn't really enjoy the first part of the story, I think it did a really fantastic job of painting a picture of the setting. And I was able to really understand just how uncomfortable Vivian was because I was also uncomfortable. So even though I didn't personally enjoy the writing style in the beginning, I think it was really, really well done and really effective. And overall, especially by the end, I loved the story and I really look forward to reading the rest of it. So the next point I wanted to mention is I had thought Nicol Bolas was going to be having a larger role in this story. I guess I kind of assumed that the Vivian story would be the story of Nicol Bolas coming to Scala and destroying the place. But he was only kind of casually mentioned as Vivian was essentially comparing the Dusk Legion in her mind to the capriciousness of Nicol Bolas destroying her plane. Yeah, we got sort of a little flashback to her spark moment, which was occurring exactly as Scala ceased to exist. I don't know if there will be more of that. We have two more episodes in the story left. But I think what's really interesting is that this means Nicol Bolas destroyed Scala not that long ago, like way after the mending. It's hard to tell exactly how old Vivian is. But Scala probably was only destroyed in the last couple decades. I would say even more recently than that, probably after Alara, because it was only after Alara that Nicol Bolas felt powerful enough again to destroy a plane, which is why Johnny had to run him off Alara in the first place. Yeah, which is, we're about four years, four and a half years? Yeah, I, th- I think for, for about four years. So like... I don't know, that's really interesting to me because we don't know what Bolas was doing for a lot of that time. Most of his actions are pretty well accounted for for the last year or so in story, but I guess he was off destroying Scala. And we still don't know what he was doing there either. We had guessed that he was looking for some kind of interplanar technology because Vivian's backstory had already told us that there was a technologically advanced civilization on Scala that lived in opposition to kind of the woods people. So if those people didn't have the technology Bolas needed, maybe this came shortly after the Alara conflict and Bolas was just really pissed and really wanted to flex his muscles after absorbing the maelstrom and just basically punched a plane out of existence because that's what he does. My hope is that it was the interplanar technology search because that would make the new Phyrexia story make more sense in that Bolas went essentially from 
technologically advanced plane to technologically advanced plane trying to find this technology that would work, which makes more sense than knowing it would happen on Kaladesh. So my other question is, are we going to get a clue about Bolas's plan in this set? We kind of thought that Chronicle of Bolas might clue us in on what he's up to, but it was a pretty straightforward standalone story about his background. I'm wondering, is this going to be just a Vivian backstory piece, so we get to know her as a character, or might it have plot relevance leading into Ravnica? What do you think? I'm hoping that it leads into Ravnica, but... I mean, so far you can't really tell where it's going to go. I will say part three, the artwork is one of Vivian Reed's Planeswalker arts superimposed onto one of the Ixalan arts. I forget which which tomb it is. So it's pretty clear at least the third part's going to take at least partially on Ixalan, if not the whole story. So we will have to see. Yeah, I imagine if she's going to show up in Ravnica, we might get a hint about that at the very end, sort of like they did with Jay showing up on Dominaria at the end of the Rivals of Ixalan story. So we'll see. I wonder if we're going to be seeing Vivian in the Chandra comic. I wonder if she doesn't show up on Ravnica, but that she actually starts showing up after Ravnica in the Chandra Nalar comic, potentially even as the antagonist for that comic. That's also possible. Which I want to get into Vivian as a character here, because I really liked her portrayal, because she is not a simple green character, I think is the best way to put it. Yeah, so we had talked about her possibly being a mono-green villain, and that's certainly how her backstory was presented in her Planeswalker bio on the Mothership, because people who are like, her destroy civilization! tend not to be good people. Well, that's that's a matter of perspective. Right. <laughs> this is the exact kind of story where I'm going to destroy civilization is the good side because the Legion of Dusk is awful. So I think this has challenged a lot of what we thought about Vivian. And I think it's very different as well from her... Corset 2019 flavor text, which a lot of people described as kind of Steve Irwin-y. Which she can still be, but that is her in her natural habitat exploring nature, whereas when she's in civilization, it's a little bit of a different story. Right. You're not very cheery when you're in the worst place you could ever imagine being in. I'm not saying that they are incongruent within her character, just that this story is showing a different side of Vivian than we thought either the flavor text or her Planeswalker bio would allow her to be. So it's taken to this story to really understand how nuanced Vivian is, which is good. And obviously, like, you're not going to get this kind of nuance in flavor text or background bios on the website. So I guess we should have waited. <laughs> like, I do agree that she seems to be the kind of character who very much has a worldview, and almost nothing is going to change that worldview. So whether she is your friend or your enemy is going to depend a lot on how you gel with that worldview. Which is interesting because a lot of our Planeswalker protagonists up until this point have been pretty malleable, I would say. 
in terms of what they're willing to accept. You put Vivian in and she, you know, will gel very strongly with some characters in some situations. And I can absolutely see her in situations where she would run completely contrary to the Gatewatch. Like on Ravnica, for instance. I could absolutely see. Imagine if she was friends with Chandra and then Chandra's like, hey, I want to go show you my home. And then Vivian shows up in the middle of Girapur, the most technologically advanced city in the entire multiverse that we know of. It provides a lot of opportunity for drama simply based on character interactions and setting, which I think is very strong from a writing standpoint and from a branding standpoint. I like a lot of what's been done with the character so far. I was going to say that I think that she shows that they are willing more so now than before with Vivian and the last two stories to write characters who are really complex and aren't just basically one personality trait. For example, a few years ago, if you'd have Jace and Chandra, Jace, I'm smart and I say stuff, and Chandra, I like to blow stuff up. They're good characters, but they're very, very, very simple because they're just the embodiment of the color that they are. With Vivian, she... She's very green, but she also has her own personality to it, and she's very different from Nyssa. And I think that's really cool, and I like that they're going more in that kind of writing direction. And she's very different, I would say, as well, from Garrick. He is very much a, I'm not going to leave the woods unless I really have to. When he was mono-green, you know, I'm only going to leave the woods to take down this one sheriff. Whereas... Vivian, I can absolutely see interacting with society more. She's not the hermit type. She is a crusader. She's a crusader. She's a ranger. She's she's not the hermit hunter in the woods. And I think that distinguishes her pretty well from Garrick, even when he was mono green, which wasn't for very long in the story. Yeah. And I like that because they obviously have pretty similar card mechanics which is understandable. I think Green absolutely needs a kind of Beastmaster Planeswalker, which is a role that Garrick cannot fill anymore because he is corrupted by the Chain Veil and currently Black Green. While Vivian's card makes her look a lot like Garrick, their characters are very different, and I think very different takes on Green. I think they would agree on a lot of things. For example, Garrick mentions in... Um, blanking on which comic it is. Hunter in the Veil? I think it's Hunter in the Veil. Anyway, when he goes to visit Jace on Ravnica to try and find out where Liliana went, he mentions that Ravnica is a plane that he never goes to, doesn't like going to, hates being there. Vivian would agree. They don't like cities. But whereas Garrick would say, I don't like cities, I'm not going to go here, I'm just going to stay in the woods. Vivian seems to be the kind of person who is like, whoa, city, hold the phone, knocking these things down. Because civilization sucks. So it's great to have two characters that both share that kind of green core and expressing it in very different ways. All right. So final thoughts. I just want to say that I still really want to see Doretti on Kaladesh. I, I'm sorry, I, I don't have anything else. You got to show it to me. It's not, I'm not going to be able to get it off my brain. It's been like two months. <laughs> the longest two months of my life. Andrew? My final thought is that 
I am super bummed at scheduling that we can't talk about the stuff we learned this weekend about Guilds of Ravnica. Because even though we're recording this before PAX, I know we're going to learn awesome stuff. I just feel it. I know it's going to be great. I know it's going to be exciting stuff. PAX panel has always been full of juicy information, really exciting previews, some good hints, some fluctuating quality question and answer sessions. I'm just excited. I'm excited now recording this for PAX, and y'all have to listen to it after we know what happens. And frustrating. Time sucks. Screw you, linear time. (laughs) That is all. (laughs) All right, Ashley. My final thought is, although we're going to have to wait a little bit, the Gruul Boar God is coming, and I will be there. (laughs) So you're placing bets on the Gruul Boar God right now? It just, you know, I don't know if it will happen anytime soon, but it will, and I will be there. You hear that, Wizards of the Coast? You're on notice. Oh, I'm I'm right there with her. It's Boar God time. It's the big party pig. You know, he's he's gonna kill Nicol Bolas. That's that's just just what happens. That's not a serious prediction. You know who I really want to see is Crocked. Ashley, you probably know what I'm talking about. It is like a curse word on Ravnica. Whenever they're cursing, they say Crocked, and it is the Goblin God of Bad Luck on Ravnica. That's who I want to see. Not the boar god, but croc. Make it happen, wizards. Or, if you don't want to worship a god of bad luck, you can help support the Vorthos cast on Patreon and put your money towards good luck things, like this podcast. Everyone who donates to our Patreon gets access to our Vorthos cast Discord community, where we're talking all about the exciting new Ravnica things that are happening, and a bunch of other vorthosy things and then a bunch of non-vorthosy things it's still just an internet community where things get wild sometimes it's a lot of fun so if you enjoy listening to the vorthos cast and would like to support our show just visit patreon.com slash the vorthos cast thank everyone who's donated so far and we thank everyone who listens thank you for listening this has been the vorthos cast